Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey to the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, geopolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome oddities to another oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you for checking this out. Now, if you're familiar with Anthony C. Sutton's trilogy on Wall Street and how they basically backed many of the wars and different things going on in the early part of the 1900s. We'll be specifically kind of connecting this article I'm about to cover with his book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. And he was able to, with other books, talk about the best enemies money can buy, showing how American businesses had been doing business with the Soviets, the communists during the Cold War. And we look also to foreign aid that went to Russia for a time. And actually, I think we continued to do that until just a few years ago. So, and I I think there were some stopping points during the latter part of the Cold War. But we also know, of course, that the Bank for International Settlements also did business with the Russians, the Soviets. But let's look at this article here that I have found, kind of accidentally run into it. But uh, let's look at it here. This is from the American Heritage. Now, I don't know anything about this. It's a magazine. And this goes way back to December 1988. This is by Thomas P. Hughes. The title is How America Helped Build the Soviet Machine. Now, this is really not something new we do this all the time how many different countries and leaders have we backed only to you know a decade or so or even less than a decade later go and end up fighting them you wonder where all those weapons that are going to ukraine that the whole world is sending and all that money if that's going to end up in us fighting some other enemy down the line 
But let's go ahead and get into this article because I think it's kind of some important history that, you know, still a lot of people are not familiar with. It says, to bring their nation to the leading edge of technology, Soviet leaders are turning to the United States. Their grandfathers did the same. Our usual picture of the Soviet Union and its history is strictly political and economic. We trace the many struggles for leadership power and the ups and downs of the Soviet economy. We chart the rise of Stalin and the battles for party domination that followed him. And we watch Mikhail Gorbachev avow glasnost or political openness and perestroika economic restructuring. And we hope that our fundamentally different values in these spheres can increasingly influence the Soviets, just as the Soviet Union believes its own values have long influenced the world. But beyond politics and national economics, another America has been making a profound impression on Russians for about a century. That is technological America, the developer of the most creative and fecund system of production the world has ever known. Although the idea of America as a moral force has never faded, many foreigners think mainly in terms of inventive, productive America. Witness the thousands of visitors from overseas who headed for the automobile factories in Detroit in the 1920s, the hydroelectric plants of the Tennessee Valley Authority in the 1930s, and Silicon Valley in the 1980s. A fair test of where our greatest national prestige lies would be to ask Mikhail Gorbachev, would he prefer two weeks in the Cradle of Liberty or three days in Silicon Valley? Vladimir Lenin, Leon Trotsky, and Joseph Stalin all opted for technological America. One of the momentous and almost forgotten chapters of modern history concerns the Bolsheviks' fierce determination between the two world wars, excuse me, to adopt the industrial legacy of the United States, to recreate the steel mills of Gary, Indiana, behind the Urals, to duplicate Ford's River Rouge plant in Nizhny Novgorod, or Novgorod, to erect a copy of the Great Dam generators of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, on the falls of the Dnieper River, all using American methods and American engineers, planners, and managers. Few Americans today can identify Frederick W. Taylor, the father of scientific management, but he and Henry Ford and other modern American industrialists and engineers influence Soviet's history deeply and permanently. For the Bolsheviks in 1920, Fordism plus Taylorism equaled Americanism. And Americanism, in that sense, was crucial to the success of the communist state. Mikhail Gorbachev may know about this chapter of the Soviet-American relations. The Soviet press and historians have publicly forgotten it, but in any case, Gorbachev seems determined to repeat it. Perestroika, without American technical and managerial input, is probably no more conceivable to him than was a socialist future without Fordism and Taylorism to Lenin. Likewise, many Americans do not know about one of the most remarkable episodes of the technological transfer in history. The American engineers, architects, and industrialists who helped build the productive base of communist Russia swept the record under the rug. Their successors, like Lenin, seemed poised to do it all over again. Let me grab a drink here. 
it's amazing how we continue to create our own enemies, prop up our enemies, give them technology, weapons, and different things like that. And so many people are still totally unaware of it. We have such short attention spans. Let me get back to this article here. In the 1920s, the cream of American firms involved with automobiles, electricity, and workplace management were eager to sell the state of their art, give or take a few years, to the Reds despite powerful anti-communist voices on the right. I'll say that again. In the 1920s, the cream of American firms involved with automobiles, electricity, and workplace management were eager to sell the state of their art, give or take a few years, to the Reds despite powerful anti-communist voices on the right. The Soviets were ready to buy despite their aversion to capitalism. They distinguished, as many Americans cannot even today, between America's history-shaping means of production and our free enterprise economic superstructure. The United States had never enjoyed greater worldwide respect or envy than after World War I. The Soviets believed that the American system of production could consolidate the Bolshevik Revolution. Of course, we know that uh, Jacob Schiff of Kuhn and Loeb and uh, the Federal Reserve fame actually bankrolled Trotsky going back over to start the war. But by 1926, dreams of Americanization were mesmerizing Soviet engineers and managers. Soviet planners believed that their future required large systems of production on a regional scale, larger even than those in the United States. They would be feasible because socialism would not be burdened by the political and economic contradictions of capitalism, which constrained the full development of modern production technology. Lenin understood that modern industrialization involved more than machines, processes, and devices. It involved order, centralization, control, and systems. And so the regime drove peasant workers mercilessly, excuse me, mercilessly to gather grain and cut wood and dig minerals that were exchanged for quantities for foreign, especially American technology. It says also, Lenin embraced American scientific management and Americans visiting in 1926 found the Russians obsessed with diagrams. Stalin summarized the Soviet celebration of American technology and management in 1924. Quote, the combination of the Russian revolutionary sweep with the American efficiency is the essence of Leninism. <laughs> and that has, of course, been written out of history, right? The Soviet economy, excuse me, the Soviet economy passed through several phases between the world wars. From 1917 to 1921, the period of war communism, the Bolsheviks attempted desperately and unsuccessfully to turn industry over to trade unions and committees of workers. The country overcame the foreign and civil wars of these years only after the authorities began to restore managers and engineers to their old jobs. Then, in 1921, with the country near exhaustion and industrial production stalled, Lenin called for a new economic policy. It involved a temporary retreat from centralized planning and control. The regime now tolerated substantial private and market enterprise while retaining control of the commanding heights, which included heavy industry, 
transportation, and electricity supply. During these years, the government embarked on a national plan process that culminated in 1928 in the first five-year plan. With it came a drive to eliminate private enterprise in both industry and agriculture. During this period of war communism, the importation of Western technology and experts was impossible. But under the new economic policy, Western manufacturers were allowed to establish and operate plants in the Soviet Union. During the first five-year plan, the Soviets turned to the outright purchase and import of foreign production plants. Foreign experts, especially American, supervising Soviet workers and engineers, set these plants into operation and then turned them over to Soviet managers. Always fearful of dependence on the capitalist world, the Soviet leadership was struggling to avoid the import of manufactured goods by pursuing instead the adoption of the means of producing them. The large-scale transfer of technology that followed was the most intense in history, and it should be recognized as a major chapter in the Soviet past. Before then, Russia still re- excuse me. Before then, Russia still resembled a pre-industrial nation with a lingering reliance on human and animal power and an agricultural economic base. Joseph Stalin later claimed that he had found Russians using wooden plows and left them with nuclear reactors. That, of course, was rhetoric. Railroads, iron and steel production, textile manufacture, and foreign loans were rapidly industrializing many regions of Russia before the 1917 revolution, but the speed of change was multiplied after 1921 by the forced adoption of foreign technology. I know I don't know about you guys, but I find this quite fascinating because it's barely ever talked about, and really, there's only been a couple of books that uh, have bothered to cover this, and of course, Anthony C. Sutton's being one. I'll continue here. When in 1916, Vladimir Lenin, the Russian political revolutionary, discovered Frederick W. Taylor, the American technological revolutionary. There was a paradoxical meeting of the minds. Taylor, born in Philadelphia in 1856, had introduced time and motion studies of workers when he was a foreman and a manager at a steel plant in his 20s. These formed the basis for his widely influential theories of management science. He believed that with close observation of individual workers, any mechanical job could be divided into precisely prescribed individual movements, eliminating wasted time and energy. The activities of a factory as a whole could likewise be minutely organized. His system often provoked fierce opposition among workers who lost virtually all freedom and control over their work. But it did often lead to great economies. It mechanized individual labor just as Ford's assembly line mechanized factory organization. Taylor died in 1915, but the influence of his system of scientific management is still felt throughout industry. Lennon was also impressed by the work of Frank Gilbreth, another American time and motion pioneer who seemed less intent on speeding up or exploiting workers than on finding the one best energy-saving way of doing work. Lennon wrote in the margin of one of Gilbreth's articles that scientific management 
could provide a transition from capitalism to socialism. Lenin insisted that in his socialist state, Taylorism would no longer exploit the worker for the profit of greedy capitalists, but would instead greatly increase the fruits of production for the benefit of the workers and peasants and would make useful his country's large pool of unskilled peasant labor. He also perceived that Taylor's centralized control of the workplace, work process, and workers would allow politically reliable experts to monitor the system closely during the transition from capitalism to socialism and would help root out bourgeoisie saboteurs. A top Soviet labor leader foresaw Russia becoming a new flowering America with a new workers' culture to fit technology. As we go on here, in the spring of 1918, at his country lay disorganized, excuse me, in the spring of 1918, as his country lay disorganized and demoralized, Lenin said, The task that the Soviet government must set the people in is all its scope. Excuse me. The task that the Soviet government must set the people in all its scope is learn to work. We must organize in Russia the study and teaching of the Taylor system and systematically try it out and adapt it to our purposes. He intended to recruit American engineers to help install the system. Soviet labor unions and some members of his own party opposed the plan, but Lenin preferred management by experts to chaotic worker control. Even if the experts were, for a time, bourgeoisie holdovers or foreigners, he was also prepared to pay higher wages to experts and more productive workers. When American businessmen heard of this advocacy of Taylorism, they took it as proof that the American way was the best way. Leon Trotsky, head of the Soviet War Department and leader best known after Lenin, also embraced Taylorism. He tried to introduce scientific management into the Red Army in the, and decimated armaments industry. In a magazine article, he wrote, Trotsky recalled his reliance on Keeley, an American engineer perhaps named Kelly, who went to the Soviet Union in about 1918 to help tailorize industry. Keeley told Trotsky that soldiering, loafing on the job, absorbed about 50% of all productive time in Soviet industry. Trotsky, facing total industrial collapse during that period of war communism, endorsed a militarization of labor that amounted to extreme tailorism on a national scale. It sounds like fun, right? Drawing up their first five-year plan in the mid-1920s, the Soviets raised Taylorism from mere factory organization to the grand scale of the national economy. The Communist Party translated and published Taylor's book, The Principles of Scientific Management, and high authorities brought over Walter Polakov, an American follower of Henry L. Nat, or Gant, one of Taylor's most fervent disciples to provide a liaison with American scientific management experts and to prepare production charts for the entire first five-year plan. Alexei Gastev, a Soviet Union leader and poet, helped give Taylorism an exotic Soviet flavor. He saw industrial workers as extensions of the engine they intended, and he lauded the fusion of man and machine. Quote, 
I grow iron arms and shoulders. I coalesce with the iron form, unquote. Fascinated by Taylor and Gilbreth's work, he became the bard of scientific uh, management. Excuse me. Lennon found Gastev's ideas and enthusiasm appealing, so the poet, the poet received support for what he called his ultimate artistic creation. Guys, there is nothing like government-backed art, let me tell you. And that goes right into uh, what I've been studying, of course, is the, uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And that's, I think it's going to make for a really interesting show, but let me go on here. I don't want to get sidetracked. The Central Labor Institute, now that's where this Gastev was getting his funding via, uh, you know, Lenin, obviously. The Institute became, in the 1920s, the fountainhead for Soviet Taylorism. Time and Emotion Studies became Gastev's idea fix. His critics complained that the Institute neglected the full complexities of scientific management, but Gastev was reaching beyond. He wrote... Many find it repugnant that we want to deal with human beings as with a screw, a nut, a machine. But we must undertake this as fearlessly as we can accept the growth of the trees and the expansion of the railway network. Let's see. He predicted that Taylorism would usher in a new era in which society itself would be mechanized, run by social engineering. In the workplace and in society alike, the seats of authority would be the offices of managers and engineers. Writing that Taylor was an inventor, Gilbreth was an inventor, Ford was an inventor, Gustav spoke of Russia transformed into a new flowering America. The Stalinist purge that decimated social scientists eliminated Gustav's institute in 1940. In 1941, it was reported that he had, he had been shot and killed. Usually, the way it goes back in those Soviet days, when you are done with and uh, they need you no longer, you're gonna die. The Soviet embrace of Taylorism created countless problems. A system of management developed in and for a highly industrialized and productive nation was being imposed on a backwards nation. American engineers and management experts returned home with horror stories of frantic and harsh efforts to implement Taylorism. Many peasants turned to industrial workers, failed to arrive at their tailorized jobs on time because they had no clocks in their homes. Party officials demanded speed-ups in one part of an integrated factory system while neglecting others, creating monumental bottlenecks and log jams. Pressed by unrealistic quotas, workers overworked newly imported machinery, cut corners, and turned out shoddy products. Engineers and managers found the honest mistakes might be labeled criminal sabotage by high-level functionaries protecting their own jobs. Irrational speed-ups and quota increases became a lasting characteristic of Soviet Taylorism and of Soviet technology in general. Let's see here. Lenin decided early on that nationwide electrification would, like Taylorism, be necessary for building a modern Russia. He agreed with Marx that steam power and factory systems had helped create industrial capitalism, and he reasoned by analogy that the electrification and the growth of large regional systems of production would promote the next great social change, the formation of socialist society. 
I'm going to try to pronounce this name, but I'm sure I'll get it wrong. The engineer, GM Krizhanovsky, an advisor to Lenin, persuaded him that the electrification could never be fully developed where competition prevailed. Only collective enterprise could bring about a nationwide system of energy production with a grid that would function like a single machine. The vision of American utility magnets paled by comparison. We won't read the whole thing here, but I think you guys are getting the uh, kind of gist of the story and how this has been kind of lost to the history books for the most part. But we will go on a little bit farther. Lenin had been interested in electrification since the 1890s when he had shared exile in Siberia with this Chris Hanovsky. Like many Western reformers of the time, Lenin saw electrification as a step forward to an ideal society. It would accelerate the transformation of dirty, repulsive workshops into clean, bright laboratories worthy of human beings and electric light and heating of every home would ease the life of millions of domestic slaves. He often showed himself to be more enthusiastic than knowledgeable, as when he called for the installation of electric lights in every rural district within one year and the acquisition of copper for wiring by gathering scraps in rural areas. H.G. Wells, the British author and social reformer, socialist Fabian, visited him in 1920 and concluded that Lenin, who, like a good Orthodox Marxist, denounces all utopians, has succumbed at last to a utopia, the utopia of the electricians. Lenin and this Krizhanovsky embarked on a campaign in 1920 and 21 to push through a national plan for electrification. Lenin proclaimed to the Congress of the Soviets that electrification and modern large-scale production would secure the ultimate victory of communism over capitalism. And he, and he predicted, if Russia is covered with a dense network of electric power stations, our communist economic development will become a model for a future socialist Europe and Asia. He called for the widest possible propaganda, including the conversion of every electric power station we build into a stronghold of enlightenment to be used to make the massive or the masses electricity conscious. He asked that a copy of the National Electrification Plan be sent to every school. Illiterate peasants should learn to read using it as their basic book. Electrification proceeded throughout the 20s by means of massive transfer of technology, as in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, when Peter the Great tried to westernize Russia, the Soviet government resorted to the tried and tested ways of importing technology, including the transition of technical and scientific books, the hiring of foreign experts and skilled workers, and the purchases of machines and processes. But the Soviets also made the unprecedented move of importing entire systems of production and incorporating them in hydroelectric complexes. Albert Kahn, the American architect who designed Ford's Highland Park and River Rouge plants, observed, It is indeed difficult to understand the Russian psychology which dictates the erection of such huge establishments. We in this country would begin with a smaller layout so arranged as to make an expansion easily possible. Not so in Russia, where they say, we haven't time to learn to run, we must fly. 
In building large electric power stations, the Soviets unwisely assumed that the capacity would be well utilized and load curves demand would keep pace. Any American power magnet could have warned them that this was likely this wasn't likely unless demand was at a carefully built up supply. The falls of the Dnieper River, once dominated by a fortress of Ukrainian Cossacks, was chosen as the site of the most ambitious of the new construction schemes. What's that, that Ukraine used to be in Russia? Yes, yes it did. A mammoth hydroelectric plant and regional complex. Often compared to the Muscle Shoals hydroelectric project of the 1917 to 1925 in America, which became the first unit in the Tennessee Valley Authority system, the Dnieper effort was done in American style. The Soviets named the American Hugh Cooper as the chief consulting engineer. I.E., or excuse me, I. Alexandrov, a Soviet engineer, headed the project. American companies supplied equipment and engineers. International General Electric built five of the nine giant generators needed, and the rest were built by Leningrad under American supervision. The Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company constructed the nine 85,000 horsepower turbines, the world's largest at the time. German and Swedish firms assumed responsibility for other major items, but about 70% of the hydroelectric equipment was American. Steam shovels, hoists, locomotives, rock drills, and construction steel also came from the United States. One American who saw the site said it looked like a little America, the only unfamiliar part being the presence of women workers. But we fixed that afterwards, guys. Right, guys, let's take up where we left off there a few minutes ago. And we ended with one American who saw the site said it looked like a little America, the only unfamiliar part being the presence of women workers. When the American photographer, Margaret Bourke-White, visited the construction, she observed four soft-spoken Virginians in charge of the Soviets installing the turbines. Construction by tens of thousands of workers began in 1927. On May 1, 1932, the V.I. Lennon Power Station was dedicated and began operation as the largest hydroelectric plant in the world. The project schooled countless Soviet engineers and workers in Western technology. Hugh Cooper believed that the experience gained on the Dnieper would enable the Soviet Union, with its abundance of human and natural resources, to take a commanding position as a world power. In line with Lenin's insistence on the large scale, the Dnieper planners proposed to erect a power system like the one that had mushroomed around Niagara Falls and make it the core of a unified industrial complex, economically and technically interconnected. They projected a nitrogen fixation plant, a cement works, an aluminum production plant, and a steel producing complex, all knit together by high voltage power lines and an electrified railway. They built a complex of canals around the falls and the dam that made possible unbroken navigation on the Dnieper from northern Russia all the way to the Black Sea, a dream of Catherine the Great. And they planned high transmission lines to carry power to industry in the Don Basin 200 miles away. 
They also envisioned a new city for 150,000 workers in the heart of the Dnieper complex, predicting that the population in the area would grow to as much as 8 million. At the ceremonies dedicating the hydroelectric station in 1932, the government awarded Hugh Cooper its highest honor, the Order of the Red Star. He was the first foreigner so honored. Born in Sheldon, Minnesota in 1865, Cooper had built hydroelectric projects throughout the world, including the mile-long Keokuk Dam and power plant on the Mississippi and the U.S. government installation at Muscle Shoals. While under contract to the Soviet Union from 1927 to 1932, he spent one or two months each year at the Dnieper site. He and his American staff lived in a special foreign section with comfortable housing, excellent imported provisions, and access to a swimming pool and a golf course. Cooper, a dry and cautious man, once said that he did not accept any isms except good, old-fashioned, American common senseism. But he added that he found all the Soviet leaders with whom he dealt, including Joseph Stalin, men of great intellectual ability, committed to improving living conditions through technology. He commended their forthright, or forthright business dealings and their lack of corruption, and he also liked Russian workers, whom he found eager to help on his huge project. Trying to teach peasant laborers to use complex equipment could be heartbreakingly frustrating, but he made headway. The Soviet managers' clear authority over the workers and their use of piecework wages also pleased Cooper. In the United States, Cooper was a backer of Soviet-American relations before his country formally recognized the Soviets. He headed the American-Russian Chamber of Commerce, whose directors came from leading American corporations eager for business. Among those representing the corporate, excuse me, among those Represented in 1932 were the International General Electric, Westinghouse Electric International, General Motors, W. Avril Harriman and Company, and the Chase National Bank, of course. President Roosevelt recognized the Soviet Union in 1933. A lot of really, really interesting stuff happened in that year, and I guess that shouldn't be a surprise. According to the historian Herbert Fies, economic calculations brought the question of recognition to the fore. Prevailing conditions in the United States made the lure of any new foreign market attractive, and the Russian market was thought to be potentially a great one. Ultimately, however, the hope of economic benefit was scantily fulfilled. Lenin asked the National Electrification Plan to be sent to every school peasants should use it to learn to read. By 1928, the Soviets inaugurated the first five-year plan. Henry Ford had become an even greater hero to the Soviets than the aforementioned Frederick Taylor. An emotional, an emotional cult grew up around Ford's methods and even his person. By 1925, his autobiography, My Life and Work, had had four printings in the Soviet Union and one American in Russia reported that plant managers were studying Ford with as much enthusiasm as they had for Lenin. More than one village adopted the name of the Fordson Tractor, and the New York Times reporter Walter Gerani wrote in 1928 that 
Ford means America and all that America had accomplished to make her a model and an idea for this vast and backward country. Cheap mass production is a Soviet goal, more precious from the practical standpoint than world revolution. The Soviets invoked their massive Ford design plants along the Dnieper hydroelectric project to symbolize modern Soviet technology. And Ford's social philosophy, espousing both mass production and mass consumption, fired as much enthusiasm as it did, as did his machinery and plant layouts. In 1919, a Soviet delegation had asked for a meeting with Henry Ford, stating, We believe that we can make you understand that Soviet Russia is inaugurating methods of industrial efficiency compatible with the interests of humanity. Ford's role as a Soviet hero and provider of technology must have caused him at least a minor identity crisis. For in my life and work in 1922, he wrote, Nature has vetoed the whole Soviet Republic, for it sought to deny nature. It denied above all else the right to the fruits of labor. Ford's views on the Soviet regime never penetrated Soviet consciousness the way his Fords and tractors did. By 1926, the Soviets had ordered 24,600 Fordsons, and most had been delivered. The Ford Motor Company boasted in 1927 that 85% of the trucks and tractors in the Soviet Union were Ford-built, whereas in 1924, there had only been about 1,000 tractors operating in all of the vast Russian countryside. But by 1934, there were 200,000, most of them from U.S. manufacturers. Trotsky said, the most powerful, excuse me, the most popular word among our forward-looking peasantry is Fordson. Indeed, the peasants celebrated Fordson days and Fordson festivals in their villages. But superb as the Fordsons were as a symbol, they served less well as real tools. They were often too light to plow Russian soil deeply enough. Soviet Union had no Ford service system to repair them when they broke down and the Fordson turned out to be an inappropriate technology in any case because it burned benzene, a fuel in short supply. Hmm. Interesting. The Russians needed naphtha burning engines. After 1928, they imported larger and sturdier tractors from international harvester John Deere and Alice Chalmers. After 1931, imports of tractors dropped sharply as the Soviet Union finally began to increase its own production, mostly in plants of American design. Stalingrad. In Stalingrad, the Soviets built an immense tractor plant designed by Albert Kahn. Its construction was supervised by John K. Calder of Detroit and International Harvester provided technical advisors and the design of the tractor to be made there. Approximately 380 American engineers and foremen helped run the plant. The plant began producing tractors in 1930 and soon became known for poor quality, late delivery, and gross mishandling of machinery by workers, many of whom had never even seen an electric light before. Calder also supervised the construction of a tractor plant at, let's see if I can pronounce this, this would be Chelyabinsk. I'm sure I didn't. Those assembly building, those, excuse me, whose assembly building, which the Soviets boasted would be the largest building in the world, was to turn out 50,000 Stalinet tractors a year. Stalinet, he's, (laughs) 
Got to love that. Production began in 1933 with a replica of the Caterpillar crawler. The Soviets typically paid no royalties to American patent holders. Leon A. Swazian, looks like, who had a supervised construction of Ford's Great River Rouge plant, presided over the expansion of a small tractor plant in Leningrad and the building of a plant in Kharkov to produce a copy of an international harvester tractor. The frustrations experienced by American managers, engineers, and foremen trying to bring the tractor plants into production while dealing with Soviet functionaries uh, functionaries and workers hardly exceeded those encountered by the Americans who helped the peasants use the machines. Harold M. Ware, an American, traveled to Russia with his wife and eight American farmers in 1922 to teach the peasants how to operate the tractors. Trotsky himself greeted the group. He noted that they were nearly all first-generation Americans of Scandinavian descent and remarked, So in one generation, you make Scandinavian peasants into American farmers and American tractors and American tractor experts. Well, we can make Russian peasants over here like that, too. That one generation provided a very long and hard one for the Soviet Union. The increasing number of tractors made in the Soviet Union after 1930 suffered from leaking radiators, poorly cast cylinder heads, loose bearings, and broken valve springs. One returning American instructor wrote, I can't begin to tell you how the Russians mistreat their machinery. Tractors good for 10 years, hard work, will last through three seasons there. The Russian worker does not care whether it runs or not. In fact, if it doesn't run, he just has more time to sleep, and sleep is one thing that he loves. Frantic efforts to meet production quotas broke down many machines. One Soviet farm manager received American experts with a revolver on his desk, not a very scientific management tool. A five-man delegation from the Ford Motor Company, making a 7,000-mile tour of the country in 1926, found the Soviets obsessed with charts, diagrams, and colored tables of figures that meant nothing. After being shown a chart identifying a large number of tractor repair shops in the Ukraine, the delegation was unable to locate a single acceptable facility there. They found modern machine tools and logical layouts, but in dirty factories manned by lazy, poorly supervised workers. In a confidential report to the Ford Company, the group expressed its shock that political considerations had been allowed to outweigh technical ones. In addition to the tractors, the Russians craved the famous Ford automobile and truck. A delegation from the Soviet Union's Amtorg Trading Corporation and the Moscow Automobile Trust visited Detroit in 1928, the year after Ford changed over the Model T to the Model A. The Ford company had shown interest in negotiating with the Soviets as worldwide sales of the Model T waned, and Soviet orders for the Fords and tractors dropped. In May 1929, the Ford Motor Company signed a contract with the Supreme Economic Council of the Soviet Union in which it agreed to furnish detailed construction plans and equipment for plants that would eventually produce 100,000 Model A cars and Model AA trucks a year. The Austin Company, a Cleveland engineering and consulting firm, would supervise erection of a production plant, assembly plant, and a model city for workers 
at the Nizhny Novgorod, renamed Gorky in 1932. Albert Kahn directed construction of a smaller assembly plant in Moscow. These factories were to assemble imported cars until the Soviet production plant began operating. An exchange of several hundred Soviet and Ford foremen and engineers smoothed the process. Henry Ford's attitude had changed since he had written My Life and Work. Russia is beginning to build, he announced, adding, I have long been convinced that we shall never be able to build a balanced economic order in the world until every people has become a self-supporting, as self-supporting as possible. The nations will do as Russia is doing. He believed that the contract would give the Soviets a half a century's worth of experience, and industrialization meant prosperity, and prosperity would build world peace. Those who recalled Ford's ambitious venture with his peace ship in World War I could hardly doubt his sincerity as well as his determination to sell cars. When the Nizhny Novgorod assembly plant began production in February 1930, townspeople celebrated enthusiastically, but Soviet officials shrewdly insisted that the Ford supervisor take a luxurious vacation on the Black Sea for two months until they were sure the assembly plants in the Nizhny Novgorod and Moscow would run without him. In January 1932, the large production plant began operation. River Rouge was established on the Volga. The Muscovites could own Model A's. On paper, Ford lost money on the arrangement. The Soviets purchased less than half the vehicles they had contracted for, but since the company was the changing was changing over to the V8 engines, the Nizhny Novgorod experience, uh, experience allowed it to unload $3 million worth of production equipment that would otherwise have been scrapped. The forces of a technological uh, the forces of a technological revolution also dared the prodigious feat of constructing a steel complex based on the one at Gary, Indiana. It stretched behind the Urals at the Magnet... Mag, Mag, <laughs> I'm going to say this is Magnitogorsk, Magnitogorsk, a village near two small mountains which rich in magnetized iron that had aroused superstition and interest ever since early explorers had noted how their compass needles were deflected there. The mountains had been mined since the 18th century, but primitive transportation and the great distances from behind the Urals to markets in western Russia had kept their iron output small. Now the Soviet leaders planned to build nothing less than the world's largest and most modern iron-producing facility. It would include facilities for magnetic separation, concentration, and centering of ore. Eight giant 1,500-ton blast furnaces, 28, later 42, open hearth furnaces, three Bessemer converters, 45 Coke ovens, what's a Coke oven, and three rolling mills. These facilities would be only a part of a larger regional complex that included gold, platinum, silver, copper, nickel, lead, and aluminum mines, machine building and armaments plants, tractor and railway car works, oil fields and refineries, and transportation lines to coal sources 
as far away as Siberia. It's quite the feat. This scheme, which also called for socialist working communities on the barren landscape, was called the Ural Kuznetsk Kombinat. The Soviets meant it to show that they could learn from and transcend the capitalistic system of production. Peasants from Russia and nomads from Siberia, some of them escapees from newly collective collectivized farms streamed into the area seeking work even before before engineers from the Soviet Union and abroad appeared. Arthur G. McKee and Company of Cleveland was the principal foreign contractor. A German firm built the rolling mill. The coke plant was erected by the U.S. firm of Coppers and Company. Various Soviet organizations supervised construction of the open hearth furnaces transportation systems, water supply, and other facilities. Frain Engineering, another U.S. consulting and engineering firm, joined the Soviet engineers in designing and constructing the Kuznetsk Ironworks, another part of the regional plan. Fourteen Frain engineers had already, since 1927, been advising the Soviets on the development of their metallurgical industries. John Scott, a young American who worked in Russia's City of Steel, left an account of his experience. He wrote that he saw much sweat and blood, but also a magnificent plant built. Scott had left the University of Wisconsin in 1931 to apprentice as a welder at General Electric. He had been disillusioned by the Depression in the United States, finding little use for his energy and enthusiasm at home. He decided to lend a hand in the construction of a society which seemed to be at least one step ahead of the Americans. He lived with the workers building the Magnitogorsk, however you say that, blast furnaces, and saw many of them die or suffer terribly from cold, hunger, fatigue, and industrial accidents. Thousands of political prisoners and dispossessed peasants worked at this plant under secret police surveillance. Special representatives of the Communist Party came from Moscow to enforce schedules and quotas. Scott described them as sources of initiative and energy able to force the work forward despite their intrigues in heresy hunting. He concluded in 1942 that Stalin's indomitable will and his ruthless tenacity were responsible for the construction of the plant and the entire Ural and Western Siberia industrial areas. This is pretty amazing. I never knew any of this, to be honest with you guys. Most high-level personnel for such projects had been educated in both political dogma and technical skills. Engineers from old regimes were always suspect, but tended to be much better trained than young engineers from Soviet schools. But engineers with diplomas from Soviet technical schools were paid six to eight times as much as unskilled workers. Upper-level managers made up to 30 times as much as laborers and foreign engineers, including Americans, had the highest pay and living standards of all. The Soviet planners brought in the German Ernst May, I've heard that name, Ernst May, one of Europe's foremost avant-garde architects, to plan the worker city for the plant. May had also used factory techniques to build modern housing settlements in Frankfurt in the 1920s, 
and the Soviet leadership clearly wished to establish not only modern industry, but also a modern way of life. The socialist city he built was not, according to Scott, really a very good example of a socialist city. It consisted of some 50 large balconied apartments, houses three to four or five stories high, surrounding open squares, fountains, oh, fountains, flower gardens, and playgrounds. By 1937, the apartments were desperately crowded, accommodating as many as five people per room. The apartments had electricity, central heating, running water, and bathtubs, tubs, but the tubs were usually used for storage. The Russians preferred their traditional community bathhouses. Despite all the foreign consultants, advisors, and equipment, despite intense efforts at training and education, and despite the resolve of the party representatives, the plan experienced unending frustrations. Unskilled labor misused imported machinery, unrealistic schedules bred shortcuts and distorted progress reports. Transportation and material handling facilities became overwhelmed. Supplies often ran out disastrously, disastrously, yet unexpectedly. Uh, let me read that again. Supplies often ran out disastrously, yet unexpectedly. So that's poor planning there. At the end of the first five-year plan period, work was so far behind that schedules were moved forward to the end of the subsequent second five-year plan. That is pretty bad, right? Around 1934, emphasis began to shift from building the plants to actually producing. The transfer of responsibility to the Russians was well underway in 1936 and in 1937. Foreign engineers who had been pampered by the Soviet Union now began to be accused of obstructionist tactics. Young Soviet engineers had gained experience and were beginning to enjoy the prestige and respect that had formerly been reserved for foreigners. Russian laborers began to prove themselves too. A blooming mill that shut down frequently in 1934 began processing all the steel in its open hearth furnaces that it could turn out by 35. A rolling mill that could not be officially operated in 1934 likewise ran at capacity the next year. By 1938, Scott estimated that the Ural Kuzinetsk Combinat regional plan was still only producing about 45% of its projected output, but he was impressed by the miracle that had been wrought in a desolate wilderness. The plan was producing more pig iron than all the plants in Czechoslovakia, Italy, and Poland combined. Nevertheless, its full capacity for the full near for the near future could not even produce enough metal for the steel rails needed to build the railroad system required by the giant regional complex that it was a part of. With the deepening of the depression in the West and the rise of fascism in Germany and in Italy in the 1930s, Stalinist policy changed from dependence on foreign engineers and industrialists to reliance on the new wave of Soviet engineers trained after 1917. Stalin always intended that Soviet technology and industry should catch up with and surpass that of the West. As war, as war approached, the Soviet Union became even more determined to establish its self-sufficiency. During World War II, the Soviets leaned heavily on the massive systems of production that had been established with American aid, and production was supplemented by Lend-Lease equipment from the Allies, 
After the war, Stalin and Nikita Khrushchev and Leonid Brezhnev tried to maintain their nation's impressive power while relying entirely on its own engineers, scientists, workers, and managers. Soviet military and space technology provided evidence of success, yet despite those peaks of technological excellence, there were a myriad of valleys of technological and industrial mediocrity, especially in the production of consumer goods. Central planning and a command economy did not work for the sprawling national economy of the Soviet Union as it had for tight organizations like the Ford Motor Company. And now in the 1980s, this is obviously when this was written again, now in the 1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev, as determined as Lenin once was to rebuild the Soviet Union as a modern nation based on science and technology, is imaginatively seeking the sources of stagnation. He has already proposed institutional, social, and psychological changes. He has also encouraged greatly increased contacts with foreign technology and science through joint Soviet foreign, even including the U.S., technological and industrial ventures. United States companies now involved in or in planning industrial projects in the Soviet Union include Archer Daniels Midland, with its advanced corn processing uh, processing technology, and Honeywell, which has agreed to help modernize about a hundred Soviet fertilizer plants. Dresser Industries and Combustion Engineering, Inc., both involved in joint ventures to manufacture equipment for the petroleum industry. And Occidental Petroleum, a longtime leader in Soviet-American trade, currently involved in helping build a $6 billion petrochemical plant near the Caspian Sea. America's past role in building up the Soviet Union contributed both to magnificent success and agonizing failure in an effort propelled by the, both the true idealism and ruthless drive. Analogies can actually be drawn between Russia's transformation and the earlier growth of technology in our own country. Uh, this is probably about where I'm going to stop here. It's really close to the end. But I think you guys get what I've been talking about here. Uh, we really build up our own enemies one way or the other. And, um, you know, I have the, uh, of course, I have the Anthony Sutton book, uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. A lot of you guys have heard of that. A lot of people talk about Sutton's books. But there's also, of course, the, the best enemies money can buy. But it's just interesting how, if you start looking at it, we've given weapons material aid technology to nearly all of our enemies pretty probably have given them to all of our enemies at one point or the other and built them up and it seems like that we built them up and then we use them uh, to help us fight this war that war and then we end up going to war with them eventually so i think this kind of uh, history is really interesting and helpful to understand how our government and the western government works you know it's not just our government it's NATO in general and a lot of the businesses that work with NATO and the military industrial complex and all that it's all connected of course the Brits are our partners in crime always so I really appreciate you guys checking this out I know it's been really um, tedious and uh, I apologize I can't read for crap sometimes but uh, 
lot of a uh, lot of words in there that were hard to pronounce. But I thank you for taking the time to check this out, and I hope that you got something out of it. And I tell other people about how, well, you know, American industry basically built up the Russians and the Soviets, and of course we went and had that long drawn out Cold War, and uh, you you can thank people like Avril Harriman and Henry Ford for really building up the Soviets all those years. But um, we're doing the same thing. And I wanted to also, of course, read this because, you know, people are talking about war with Russia right now more than ever because of the whole Ukrainian thing. And I think it's important to understand and hopefully help people kind of see through some of the BS that's going on. And uh, there's going to be more and more BS. But uh, cheers and blessings, guys. Thank you for watching this again. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. Because his father, although Arnold Hammer today is chairman of Occidental Petroleum Corporation, his father was Julius Hammer, who in 1919 was Secretary General of the Communist Party USA, which emphasizes the argument I made throughout my books, that at the top level, there's no difference between your top communist and your top capitalist, the interlink. You've got Armand Hammer, chairman of Occidental Petroleum, his father was Secretary of the Communist Party USA in 1919. So it's basically a power grab. It's a power grab, an international power grab. Now, during the Second World War, why Russia was pretty well decimated once again by the German forces, what part did the American Unleashed program play in building up Russia's industrial capacity after the Second World War? Well, lend lease built up Russia's capacity modernized it and expanded it during World War II. And there was some continuation all the way through perhaps to 1948-1949. There was a program after Lend-Lease which was supposed to be restricted to foodstuffs and industrial materials, but in effect, uh, I checked the records in the warehouses in Suitland, Maryland, I find that even after World War II, and this was against the intent of Congress, I suspect, there was a massive transfer of the latest industrial equipment to the Soviet Union under the so-called Lend-Lease program. Now, in 1948, there was a fascinating book came out by Major uh, Racy Jordan in which he talked about American aid to the communists as far as their ability to build nuclear weapons. Did you ever have an opportunity of verifying the facts that we had given them the heavy water, we'd given them the wherewithal to build their atomic weapons? Well, as part of the work I was doing um, at Stanford, I did investigate the, uh, the um, shipping documents for land lease and I took a sample of these documents and I checked them against Major Jordan and uh, broadly uh, Major Jordan was correct within say about five percent and Major Jordan of course made the charge that we had shipped materials to the Soviets 1944-1945 which were later used in their atomic program there is no doubt he is correct uh, we shipped heavy water which is essential but we shipped other items which are perhaps less obvious to the layman we shipped for example aluminum tubes and aluminum tubes are essential for atomic energy development we shipped graphite and graphite is another essential component so generally as far as i could check and i checked the original government land lease document general uh, major jordan was correct now, as the years have gone by, of course, we see a growing Soviet nuclear threat. The Soviets now have 
MIRV missiles. Mm -hmm. Can you get a little of the background on how the Soviet Union, which really didn't have the technology to develop those MIRV missiles that threaten our cities today, how were they able to develop the MIRV capacity? Well, you've got to go back and look at how the Russians were able to develop a rocket, space technology anyway. What they did after World War II was American forces were held back for a while while the Soviets occupied East Germany. They stripped East Germany. They took back the latest of the V-2 rocket technology from Peenemunde and other places. And the V-2 became the basis of the uh, Russian space technology. Now, if you skip the interme interme inter intervening years, you will find when you come to the early... Um, 1970s that the Russians did not have the capability to move their missiles and in particular they lacked the ability to produce the very precision micro miniature ball bearings that are needed for the control systems there was only one company in the world Brian Chuck and Grinder which could make the machinery which machines the races which within which these ball bearings run and without those races you just cannot make uh, missiles in any quantity you can make one off but not in quantity Brian Chuck and Grinder was allowed to ship to the Soviet Union 45 of the mach these machines at a time when we only had 33 in the United States. But wasn't there any objection to doing this? I objected at Miami Beach in 1972. Other people objected, but the objections were squashed. And predominantly at fault here is uh, Henry Kissinger and the incoming administration, the incoming Nixon administration. The, this was known, um, I'm sure it was known in DOD. If I knew it, then certainly DOD know, knew it. But the objections were squashed, and there was, a, uh, there was suppression of the information. And so once again, we see America building up the military capacity, the nuclear threat from the Soviet Union. Well, this goes, you know, when you talk about moving of missiles, you're talking about a quantum jump in your military technology. Now, I'm not a military man, but to me, the ability to do that is a, um, is a massive leap forward. And we enabled them to do it, and we did it knowingly and deliberately.